All right, good afternoon, guys. Thank you all for coming out. Dr. McCurdy asked me to introduce our speaker today, and I'm gonna get us started on time because we all know that Dr. Joshi loves to talk, so we don't wanna, we don't wanna um, go too far over our time slot. So Dr. Joshi, a lot of you guys know Dr. Joshi from, um, from rounding at Shock Trauma. Um, I'll give you the other side of, of, of Dr. Joshi. So Dr. Joshi is, we're, we're lucky to have her here at the University of Maryland and at Shock Trauma. She's actually a, um, a graduate of Ames, which is uh, the most competitive medical school in India. And, and if you think about kind of how many people apply and how many people get accepted there, um, it's, 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 an, it's a huge task to get accepted to the Ames Medical School. In addition to getting accepted and then, and then doing phenomenally well in her career, she also gives back to Ames um, and has done numerous outreach projects and currently has a nursing initiative um, going on with Ames where we help them um, reduce their catheter-associated bloodstream infections, their urinary tract infection rates, and just provide overall better nursing care to the patients in New Delhi. So I think that Dr. Joshi is, is you know, when, when they talk about the, the, the triple threat, I think that Dr. Joshi um, really is someone that all of us aspire to be like in the future, um, to graduate medical school, to move away from your country, to, to establish your roots in a new country, and then make yourself an expert in um, antimicrobial therapy and ID issues and, and trauma patients, and then to take that back and give back to the place where you came from is a um, phenomenal accomplishment. So without further ado, Dr. Joshi, and she's like a mother figure to, to me and to a lot of people. She straightens me out when I'm out of line. Um, provides good Indian cooking when, when uh, needed. And when I was in India with her and was sick as stink um, from I don't know what, uh, she uh, really kind of took care of me to, to make sure that I was okay. And in fact, took care of my mom um, by phone when she had dengue fever this past, uh, this past fall. So without further ado, Dr. Joshi, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, Nirav, and thank you for giving me this opportunity, Mike. I'm always happy to be here, and I love to talk. That's true. So with that, we will start our, uh, our discussion today, and I'll be happy to take comments during the lecture. If the day become too much, I'll have to stop that. So this is my pet peeve. You always try to make a diagnosis of infection before you decide to treat that, and that is number one thing. We talked about that a little bit in the last lecture that you know how you make a diagnosis of infection. The few markers we always think about are fever, leukocytosis, leukopenia particularly. We have a patient who actually became septic, dropped his white count to 2.2, and then it went up to 35,000. But the 2.2 is more worrisome than 35,000. Um, the SIRS criteria, we talked about that too. Uh, again, site-specific issues like respiratory failure or change in mental status, hemodynamic instability, as we all know, and then there are other markers which we normally don't think about. A sudden drop in platelets, which is unexplained, um, coagulation issues because sepsis syndrome does affect that. Increased glucose, increased lactates, and then we will talk a little bit, bit about inflammatory markers, which is always an issue. Just to remind you again that causes of SIRS criteria and all these things we talked about can be mimicked by both infectious and non-infectious causes, which are very extensive in a critically ill patient. And don't forget the bottom part. Um, you know, here we have silent causes, which we often don't think about with patients who are on ventilator who are not able to complain, like sinusitis, otitis media, a perirectal abscess if you don't examine your patient, or acalculus cholecystitis. 
On the right side, you have a ton of uh, non-infectious causes, which can exactly mimic infectious causes. So when you think of antimicrobial therapy, always consider both aspects and then think about it. So now going specifically to our topic today. When you do an antibiotic selection, you take four categories in mind. They're patient-related categories, and we'll talk about some of them in greater depth, but they are very extensive. You think of infection control-related categories. Very important to think in this day and age, because a lot of patients are healthcare-associated infection, and they're in and out of long-term care facilities or other institutions, so these have to be kept in mind. You have to make sure that patient is, doesn't have recent hospitalization, is not from another institution, and has no risk of MDR organisms. Then there are clearly organism-related issues, and then a whole multitude of drug-related issues, which I will discuss in great depth. So when you think of organisms, they are organisms and they are organisms. And just like all of us, they are not created equal. Some organisms are worse than the others. So when you start thinking of treating an infection, you think of an educated guess. Do you know what the bug is? Or do you anticipate what the bug is in that site? Anticipate the resistance, which will depend on MDR risk factors. If you have susceptibility data, it's helpful. And that's where your surveillance cultures are important. If the patient is colonized with VRE or MRSA, then you have to start thinking that that may be an appropriate pathogen. Time of onset, less than 48 hours, more than 48 hours, is important if patient is coming from community and not a healthcare environment. If it's a healthcare environment, let me emphasize, it doesn't matter what the time of onset is. If they are from an institution, then it's an institutionally-based bug, which is a hospital-acquired infection. And always know where your antibiograms are. And you are going to be critically, you're taking care of critically ill patients, so you're going to be in an institution. Talk to your micro lab. Most micro lab provide you an antibiogram of the previous year. Look at that, and then you will get an idea. For example, University of Maryland has a clear antibiograms, one for shock trauma, one for the other side. So if you look at the shock trauma pathogens and look, their, look at their susceptibility, they're markedly different from the other side. So depending on which unit you practice in, be familiar with that because that's going to be very helpful. And then you have inherent virulence. There are some bugs which are born with that. The classic example is group A strep, pneumococci, meningococci. Most of them are gram positives, clostridia. These are toxin-producing strains. And then there are some are opportunistic pathogens, like gram-negative rods. You have the right setting, and they will cause an infection. But if you look at this criteria, often we talk about gram-negative sepsis being much worse than gram-positives. This is a myth we are taught. That's not true. If you look at this side, most of the inherent virulence which is present in pathogens is usually gram-positive. So they come in already built in, and they have ability to attack a normal host as opposed to opportunistic gram-negative rods, which require the right opportunity to get in. So what is an antibiogram? It gives you an idea of the susceptibility of the pathogen. And as I mentioned earlier, it is good to know what's in your community. So it's good to know what's in your institution also in your community. Now you know there is national data which has been published that about 15 to 20% of E. coli and up to 40 to 50% of pseudomonases are now resistant to Cipro. So having that data, if you're anticipating a pseudomonal infection, to start Cipro as your sole drug would not be a good choice. So that's why antibiograms can help you think about that. 
So know that patient is coming from community, from a healthcare environment, very important again, as I emphasize, or from a hospital. This is the data which was published a while ago in long-term care facility, and looking at the three bugs which are very common in urinary tract, E. coli, Proteus, and Klebsiella. On the bottom, you see all the different drugs, and if you look at the susceptibility patterns, one drug which we are always hell-bent on when we think of a CARDI or hospital-acquired UTI, we always think of fluoroquinolone. Look at the percent susceptibility from an institutional setting. It's about 30 to 40 percent. So if you're going to use Cipro on a patient with CARDI who's coming from an institution, that would not be a good choice. But that tells you that antibiotics which are used frequently in PO environment and long-term care facility do not gel together. Let's look at other drugs. Bactrim, which is the second drug we use often. Look at Proteus mirabilis, 60%. So in a patient with gram-negative rod in urine who is coming from an institution, those two drugs would not be a good choice. You'll automatically go to drugs like cefepime or zosin, unfortunately more broad-spectrum drugs, till you have this data back. Or often what we use is gent, because gent has very low rates of resistance, and that's something we use once-a-day therapy. This is what probably one of the most important slides, and I cannot emphasize enough how do you assess the risk. Because if you think about inadequacy of antimicrobial therapy and association with poor outcome, one of the biggest risks is when do we have inadequate antibiotics? What is the number one cause of inadequate antibiotics? Anybody from the audience? I'll be happy to take any answers. Otherwise, I'll come to pick on Ron. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> number one risk factor is that you don't assess for MDR organisms. This was a clear hint, right? So if you don't assess for MDR bugs and you get pathogen and you're not covering the right pathogen because you did not assess properly, then that becomes number one. So if you look at the two groups of pathogens up here, MRSA and gram-negative rods, the first four or five are common risks, which we all think about. Patient coming from an institution, more than five days of hospitalization, prior antibiotics within three months, immunosuppression devices, right? That's where things change a little bit between two. For Staph aureus, presence of chronic wounds, which we always would think it would be appropriate. Recent surgery, recurrent boils, was a study done at University of Maryland by one of my infectious disease colleagues and clearly demonstrated that if you have recurrent boils, any history of boils, MRSA became a big possibility. Healthcare worker, we are more prone to get MRSA in our noses, and we also give it to our family members. Prior history of MRSA is cohorted with MRSA. On this side, there are a few things which are unusual. ICU stay severity of illness is very clear, but GI surgery and presence of a G-tube. So if you think about somebody coming from a long-term care facility with a G-tube, risk of a resistant gram-negative rod is high. You know what's the common resistance in your community. We know in India, for example, the ESPL rates are through the sky. They are almost 60 to 70%. So if you live in a con country like that, you have always have to assess for that. And interestingly, if you travel outside USA, and you have a history of diarrhea there, then you get increased risk of MDR gram-negative rod. So remember, that's one of the most important things you can assess your patient before selecting antimicrobial therapy. Now let's look at some patient factors. That was more organism factors. 
So one thing is very clear. The sicker the patient, the more likely you're going to start with the broad spectrum therapy. And I cannot dispute that because upfront, if a patient is very sick, you're not going to take any chances. You're going to cover all tracks. And the second thing, which is also important, which you have to keep in mind, you have to make sure whatever antibiotic you use, you're going to get enough concentration at that site. So you have to go above the MIC of this organism. Now, during sepsis, there are a lot of changes, and that tells you when to increase the dose, when to lower the dose. A very dramatic recommendation has come from the guidelines, which are for prophylaxis. And one thing which we now understand, although this is not related, that for prophylaxis, we have not been choosing appropriate dosing. So that is, and a patient is more obese, and patient is sicker, we might have to choose higher doses, which is something we often don't think about. So in sepsis, if you have increased cardiac output and you have leaky capillaries, you might increase the creatinine clearance or you might increase the volume of distribution. The plasma concentration of various drugs goes down, including antibiotics. So in this case, you might have to hedge towards a higher dose. If the organ function is normal, we are okay. If there is dysfunction, then we may have to choose lower doses because of decreased creatinine clearance. Now let's think of sites of infection and what impact it has on our antimicrobial use. So one of the biggest issues is CNS. When you think of CNS, because the brain, blood-brain barrier protects the CNS from all the extraneous stuff, including entry of various drugs. So very few antibiotics get into the brain, and we'll talk about that a little more. Similarly with eye, we do have a patient with endophthalmitis. Interestingly, very few antibiotics get into the eye. So that's why prophylaxis treatment, you really need to be aware what gets into the eye. For the heart, when you think of endocarditis, the deposit of bacteria is covered by fibrin and platelets. It is very well protected from the vascular flow and the antibiotic flowing in that. So you try to give antibiotics which are going to act quickly and have ability to penetrate. That's why some people swear by rifampin, which has great intraleukocytic concentrations and may be able to get into that deposit. For blood, again, you're going to choose antibiotics which are going to rapidly clear. So if you have bloodstream infection, you will choose that sort of antibiotics. Now for pneumonia, it gets a little more sketchy. Penetration is a big issue. So studies done, which were done 20, 30 years ago, compared aminoglycosides to drug like Cipro or Carbapenems or Zosin, and really demonstrated that aminoglycosides by themselves were really not good. And the reason being that pH of the pneumonia or the lung is usually acidic. And Antibiotics like aminoglycosides are denatured by acidic pH, so that's not a good idea to give it by themselves. That's why when we suggest an aminoglycoside, it's always in combination. You never give it by itself. The other hand, there's a drug like daptomycin, which is a good MRSA drug and a good gram-positive drug, but the surfactant in the lung totally denatures it. So again, know what antibiotics get into your lung. What about abscesses? The same problem. Aminoglycosides, again, Acidity takes care of that. And then the oxygen tension, which is kind of strange. If you think of intra-abdominal abscess, it's usually a combination of gram-negative rods, anaerobes. So now anaerobes actually lower the oxygen, and gram-negative rods, which is facultative gram-negative rods, preferentially grow into that. So some of the antibiotics, like aminoglycosides, don't do well in that environment. That's why not to be used alone, in combination. And lastly, but not the least, are devices. You know, devices have biofilms of little bacteria sitting on it. 
where they become almost inert. So you think of a pathogen like coag negative staph, which is actually a skin pathogen, a very low virulence. When you introduce it over a foreign body, it forms a biofilm and almost goes into an inert state where it metabolically stops, stops progressing and does not, uh, does not multiply. Because of that, a lot of antibiotics which require the bug to be rapidly multiplying because they're acting only on that phase are unable to act on that. And that's why a lot of penicillins may not do well with devices if you do not have an actively multiplying bug, which is also nutritionally very deficient, does not require the nutrition. So you've got to be careful what you use in bone, in hardware, and things like that. The other patient factors which you have to consider, the comorbid illnesses like diabetes, which produces both vascular neuropathy and hyperglycemia, which all counteract the defense mechanism. Additionally, there is some new data that diabetic patients have severe problem with sorbitol pathways, so they get extremely dry skin and autonomic instability of the skin, which is another cause of causing infection. And for some reason, they're more predisposed to get MRSA colonization and infection and pseudomonal infections. For dialysis, obviously, MRSA becomes a pathogen because they have a device in place. Uh, organ dysfunction, you have to think of excretion of drugs. For immunosuppression, you can have various, uh, various, uh, various bugs and drugs. For COPD and smoking, more common of H flu influenza and Klebsiella, and substance abuse is almost always MRSA. Aspiration is anaerobe. So think of association, take up underlying comorbid illnesses and what kind of pathogens you can get. Now what about drug factors? This is where it gets a little complex, and I know you're, uh, you're, some of you are surgeons and you don't want to pay attention to this, but I would, because this is something if you're going to do uh, any kind of critically ill patients, that'll be important. So this is where various things come about. Synergy. Now, what does synergy mean? Anybody from the audience like to jump in? I want to start picking on people if people don't answer. Unfortunately, I know most people in the audience. Okay, so two drugs augment each other. Agreed. Um, and what kind of drugs augment each other? The classic example. An aminoglycoside and a penicillin. The classic example was Tobra and Zosin, which were used in neutropenic host. The other drugs which will, a classic example is tuberculosis, right? You give rifampin, INH, and so many other things. That also is given to prevent resistance, which is the second thought. But synergistic drugs, are they augment action of each other. There are very few synergistic drugs, and there is a lot of question about synergy, and we'll talk about that a little later. Cidal versus static, we'll talk about all of these issues. The three issues which I'm not going to talk about a little more is these three. So adverse events, cholestin aminoglycosides we use a lot, and unfortunately, these drugs carry toxicity. But we will talk about when we use these drugs and why it's important to use the drugs sometimes. Bioavailability is something else which we often don't think about. If the drug is equally available by pure IV route and the patient is able to absorb, we should always go to pure route. That also saves money and also is a better route of giving. So what drugs are available equally, PO versus IV? Louder, five drugs. Linazolid, fluoroquinolones. Flagyl, great. No. 
I have discussed this in rounds. I'll be disappointed if you can't get all five. Bactrim and one more, rifampin. So just remember, these drugs are totally bioavailable. You can use one way or the other. So reasons for combination therapy. The most common reason is number one. When we use in drugs in a patient who's extremely ill, till the susceptibilities are back, we are trying to cover the gaps. So somebody coming from an institution healthcare facility is sick with septic shock. I'm anticipating MRSA and a resistant gram-negative rod. So I'm going to give something like Zosin plus an aminoglycoside plus Vanco, or one of the drugs, equivalent drugs. Synergy, we'll talk about a little more, is often not needed for cure. And this is some, a concept. When I was a fellow, I was taught that. But over time, the studies have repeatedly proven that synergy is often not needed for cure for gram-negative rods. However, for bugs like enterococci, which are much more resistant to begin with, you do need synergy. So you do need a combination of AMP and GENT, or VANCO and GENT. So for bugs like enterococci, yes. For gram-negative rod, it's much in question. For polymicrobial infection, when I anticipate MRSA and gram-negative rods, I have to give two drugs, unless you choose a drug like ceftaroline. But then if you choose ceftaroline in a patient who's very sick, you don't cover pseudomonas. So you end up using two or three drugs to cover the polymicrobial infection. And then development of resistance is something which is not often the case for using combination therapy. Except for TB and drugs like, and diseases like HIV, you often do not use combination therapy. So current evidence regarding combination therapy, and this was a very nice Cochrane analysis which was done looking at gram-negative rods and looking at pseudomonas, because often what I get quoted from my critical care colleagues, it's pseudomonas, we need a combination therapy. This study looked at a whole number of pseudomonas infections, and what it found out was a 400-some serious pseudomonal infection, there was no benefit of giving combination therapy over a single beta-lactam drug therapy like Zosin, Carbapenem, Cefepime, drugs like that. And what it demonstrated, if the bug was not resistant, there was no benefit. So for a non-neutropenic host, there is no benefit. However, the other flip side of the coin also is that sometimes when you give drugs in combination, they can actually antagonize each other. For example, one drug which was used in combination was doxy and penicillin. This was good old times, patients with meningitis. People thought penicillin acts, doxy acts, let's give both these together in a very sick baby and they will get better. What they found out was that penicillin required the bug to multiply fast and doxycycline actually inhibited the multiplication. So the penicillin was not able to act on the bug. And because of that, the children did much worse, and we lost a whole bunch of kids in the study. So remember, the drugs you might choose in combination may not, may not work together. They may work against each other. So remember that antagonization does happen. You do increase the cost, and you do increase adverse events. So really, if you, have, if you start a combination therapy, and the bug comes back fully susceptible, you should be dropping one of the drugs. That's what it's saying. Any questions from the audience or comments? Because this is one of the biggest controversies. I... Everybody okay with that? All right. So the other concept is sidal versus static. When should we choose an antibiotic which is sidal, which kills, or static, which just inhibits? So sidal means that the bug is gone, dead. 
static means the bug is still lingering. So there are three critical sites where you want the bugs to go away very quickly because it's critical. Endocarditis, a vascular infection. You want the bacteria to die. Bacteremia, you want the bugs to go away. CNS infections, yes, you want the bugs to die quickly. So these three sites, I would preferentially use a cidal agent. For all of the sites, it doesn't matter as much. There's a lot of data which is controversial for bone infection, and I don't know which way to go, but a lot of medications have been used in bone infection. For example, clindamycin in children, which has been highly successful, and clindamycin is a static agent. So bone is controversial, but the three sites where you clearly should choose cidal agent upfront should be those three sites. Now let's talk about PKPD parameters. I know this is where I lose most people. However, keep your eyes open and try to open those neurons to these suggestions because these, this is an important concept. So there are three kinds of antibiotics. One is time-dependent, and the classic examples are beta-lactams, cephalosporins, penicillins, and carbapenems. And those antibiotics are right here. So if you look at this diagram, this is the MIC of the pathogen. And MIC is when you inhibit the bacteria. Inhibition. When you give a penicillin or a carbapenem or a cephalosporin, it should be above the MIC all the time. So when you give the drug, you have to give it frequently because start here, you want to stop here, you have to keep giving it, and you have to maintain the level four to five times above the MIC. So the principle, for example, think of Zosin, you have to give it every six hours because you want to maintain a level above. And some of these antibiotics can be given by a continuous infusion. In fact, uh, the studies have been shun, done which have shown that if Zosin is given as a continuous infusion, it might work even better. So this is the concept. The second drug is, is concentration dependent. Oh, I'm sorry. It's concentration dependent. So you look at this curve. This is the peak of the drug. And this is classically aminoglycoside. So if you're giving up drug, drug like you give one gram of amikacin or 250 milligram of gentamicin, the amount of peak you give is very correlated with the action of the drug. And if you think of once a day dosing of aminoglycoside, you can get away with that because you get a very high concentration and then the concentration comes down. The other interesting part of a drug like aminoglycoside is even when it comes below the MIC, the concentration, it still continues to act and kill the bacteria. What is that called? Free cup of coffee for that person. It's called post-antibiotic effect. So even when you have the concentration of the drug which is below the MIC, the drug continues to kill the bacteria. And that's why the principle that you can give once a day aminoglycoside with high dose, you can get a high concentration, kill the bug rapidly, and even here, it continues to kill the bug. Now, the third drug is a little more complex thought process. And the classic drug is a fluoroquinolone like Cipro. An area under the curve is what you think about. The amount of drug you give, you get a peak, and then it comes down. But this is the quantity which matters, which is the exposure to the antibiotic. And that's why a drug like levofloxacin, you can give a higher dose in community-acquired pneumonia, and you can give for a shorter time, as the data suggest, and get away with it. So these are the three different ways the drugs antibiotics act. So in short, the time-dependent drug are time above the MIC, as I showed you. 
The drugs have shorter interval. You can prolong the infusion time, and you have to give them frequently. You have to maintain the concentration above four to five times, and there is no, there is no post-antibiotic effect. So you cannot go below the MIC. The drug will not act on the bug anymore. The second drug is aminoglycoside, which once a day dosing you can get away with. The sub-MIC levels are okay because it continues to kill. And then drugs like fluoroquinolones, which are measured of total exposure of bacteria, which is area under the curve. So your dosing, your thought process, the peak of dosing, how frequent you dose, depends on these parameters, and it's important to understand that. Now, penetration into CNS. There are antibiotics which get very well, the antibiotics which get okay, and antibiotics we do not know. So these don't get in. The ones which get in, in between, are penicillins, carbapenems, and vancomycin. The ones which get very well, we talked about, chloramphenicol we don't use, and these drugs we don't know about. Unfortunately, if you see, for Staph aureus, for MRSA, we have very few choices. Vancomycin, which doesn't get very well, but we don't have choices. So that's why you will see us adding a drug like rifampin, which might get, give the extra boost because it's a lipophilic agent. It gets into the CSF and may treat the MRSA slightly better in combination. Can't give rifampin by itself because once you give it, the bug rapidly mutates and becomes resistant. The other factors which you have to think about, there's something called eagle effect. Maybe I shouldn't even mention that. It's getting to be too much. We talked about post-antibiotic effect. The protein binding, you know, the antibiotic does get bound to the protein. And the more it gets bound to the protein, less it's available to diffuse to the site of infection. There is mixed data on that. It may be important. And then we talked about daptomycin already. Now also remember that in patient who is critically ill, there may be many other factors which might determine that when should you give more dose? When should you give less dose? Um, you can have variations in extracellular fluid. If you have clearly more edema, if you give a lot of fluid therapy, you can actually dilute the antimicrobial, and you may consider dosage increase. Similarly, if you increase the renal clearance, and I have to tell you, in some of my hyperdynamic young kids, as I used to see a lot more than what we see before, our mean age in trauma used to be 27 years. Our mean age now is 50-some years. So when I was doing my fellowship, that was our mean age. So I would see 18-year-old kid with a car accident, and I would be giving vancomycin 12 grams a day, if you can even imagine. And I would not even get adequate levels with that. So I was giving like two grams Q4, and I would not get adequate levels. So you have to think about, you know, some of these patients have hyper-functioning renal uh, function, and on top of that, they're hyperdynamic. And you can excrete antibiotics very much faster in these patients. So got to be, be aware of these, uh, these factors when you dose your antibiotics. So if you have drug abuse, you have burns, if patient is very hyperdynamic, um, in leukemia, in hyperalbinemia, you actually can increase renal excretion. So you have to consider that you might have to increase your dose. Um, and then, of course, renal impairment we know about. Just remember, you can, antibiotics are life-saving drugs, but they're also damaging drugs. So this was a very nice study, which very nicely demonstrated a couple of things. So this is a center in Germany, which actually used ceftazidime, which is very similar to uh, cefepime, 
with a better, uh, less gram-positive coverage as their sole gram-negative agent. And what did they see? When they started using a lot of ceftazidime, they saw a tremendous amount of resistance to ceftazidime in orange. So this is ceftazidime use in red. The orange reflects the ceftazidime resistance. And then they switched to zosin, which was done on this quarter. And as the zosin use went up and ceftazidime use went down, the resistance to ceftazidime came down, which is, of course, expected. But in addition, they also had a very high rate of resistance to zosin, which came down as they used the zosin. Now, why does it make sense? Anybody can explain this? So the more zosin we use, there's less zosin resistance and also less ceftazidime resistance. Left side of the hall, we didn't have any answers. Jacob. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, Jacob? Oh, okay, he's blaming me now for it. <laughs> Actually, that is, that is not true. I would have given a nice answer to that. And unfortunately, all antibiotics are not made equal. Some antibiotics are great for inducing resistance. One of the best drugs which can induce resistance is carbapenems. And that's why you see our reluctance to use that as an upfront drug, because the carbapenems can induce resistance to all other beta-lactams if you're used upfront. Similarly, ceftazidime has great ability to induce resistance. So if you use a lot of ceftazidime, it induces resistance to itself, but also drugs like zosin. And penicillins generally have less rates of resistance, so that's one benefit. So when you think of collateral damage, you think of all these pathogens, which are listed here. If you use drugs like third-generation cephalosporins, there's very minimal data with fourth generation, but, but third generation. You increase the risk of all these. That's why a couple of years ago, we placed a restriction on ceftriaxone use, which we use like water, because ceftriaxone is highly associated with ESPL and with C. diff and MRSA, which we use like water in ED. Fluoroquinolones, the biggest outbreak of C. diff, has been associated with fluoroquinolone use and has been associated with even gram-negatives and MRSA. And lastly, carbapenems, which also are associated with CRE, but also with MDR pseudomonas and C. diff. So what's left? Penicillins, aminoglycosides, Bactrim. These drugs are less associated with induction of resistance. So when you use an antibiotic, think of the patient, think of the community, think of the unit, think of the nation, think of everything else. So what I like to say, life is not equal, neither are antibiotics. Just remember that. So let's talk about the next concept in antimicrobial therapy. It's empiric therapy. You have to start antibiotics on time. Every second counts. The data from community-acquired meningitis is for every delay of one hour, there is 8% increase in mortality. Same data with septic shock. So if you're going to delay antimicrobial therapy, you're going to pay the price. Got to make sure it's right. That's why I was impressing that slide with MDR organisms. You got to guess right, you've got to know the comorbid problems, and you got to make sure antibiotics are adequate. So timely, timely as well as appropriate. 
This is a study done in patients with septic shock. In about 2,200 patients with septic shock, antibiotics given within first hour of hypotension, survival was 80%. For every hour delay, the, the survival rate decreased by 7.6% for every hour. And the best predictor of survival was appropriateness and timeliness of antibiotic. This slide demonstrates the same principles. As you give antibiotics appropriately, this is the survival rate, and it goes down as antibiotics are delayed from time of hypertension in hours. So why do we want to do that? Clearly, it's been demonstrated that if we use the appropriate therapy, there's less mortality, less morbidity, shorter stay, number of antimicrobial therapy goes down, and also the cost of hospitalization. This is a famous study by Dr. Koloff, which was published in 1999. Sort of a breaking study, but also a um, study which makes common sense. If you use antibiotic inappropriately, there'll be much higher mortality, and the survival rates will be much lower. So what's the difference in a patient who has MI, if you use inappropriate drugs, hypertensive crisis? You know, if you use inappropriate drugs, mortality is higher. Similarly, in patients with, um, who are septic and use inappropriate therapy, mortality is much higher. For the surgical kinds, this is a study with intra-abdominal infections. Very similar data. If you look at this, for all-cause mortality was very different. If you use antibiotics appropriately, 52% versus 23%, and the similarly for infection-related mortality. With adequate treatment, mortality was much lower. So we discussed the most common cause of failure of antimicrobial therapy. Inadequate spectrum or MDR is not, not assessed, and that is the number one thing. If you're not going to assess your patient properly, you'll start with inappropriate antibiotics. The second most common thing in a surgical ICU is obviously source not controlled. You're not draining an abscess. You're not finding what it is going on. And then the other factors become important, immunosuppression, how sick the patient is, you're not giving the right dose or you're not got the right level of penetration, you've got complications, or you missed the boat. It's not even an infectious process, as we discussed earlier. So this is my own little thought, and that's how I try to think of timeline to select antimicrobial therapy. There is different phases, and they are based on your risk assessment for an MDR bug, how sick the patient is, and time of onset. So phase one is the low-level drugs. Now, what are low-level drugs? Unisons, Bactrams, fluoroquinolones maybe, cefazolin. The next phase is medium-level drugs, which are vancos and zosins, right? Then comes the third phase, which is the third phase of, you think of carbapenems, maybe vanco, daptol, linazolid, the fourth phase, which is the next round of infection. You think of the same drugs as third phase, but supplemented. You think of adding an aminoglycoside or cholestin. Even though they are more sicker, even though they have more adverse events, you still think of that, or tigacycline. And then the last phase, God be with you. You better be having a good educated guess as to what you want to give. But when you use antibiotics in somebody who does not have pre-morbid conditions, does not have MDRS factors, 
and the time of onset is early, usually you start with lower level antibiotics. You don't put your best guns out. Because what will you do if you put the best guns out? You won't have anything left for later, number one. And then we also talked about collateral damage. If you start with the carbapenem first, which is a great inducer, you won't be left with zosins and cefabim to use later because it's already induced resistance in all of them. So this is how I think about planning my antimicrobial therapy in an ICU. Once you've started an antibiotic, and I understand if the patient is very sick, you will start with a broad-spectrum agent, you have to start thinking of reassessing your diagnosis. Is the patient infected? If the patient is not infected, you have another site, like pancreatitis or PE, you're going to drop your antibiotics. If it is susceptible and the microdata has come back, then narrow down to the lowest possible antibiotics. And this has to be a balance between a single patient and what you owe to the community. And you have to maintain your unit balance and your nation balance and balance on this earth. So day three, you have to consider strongly what you're going to do, de-escalate, discontinue, or switch to PO. That's something we need to do routinely. So the typical approach is patient is improved day three. So now you looked at your micro data. Do you de-escalate or do you discontinue? If the patient looks the same, you reassess your diagnosis. You look for complications or you look for non-infectious causes. Or you look at yourself, say, did I give the wrong dose or the wrong antibiotic? And maybe if the patient is not getting better, stop the antibiotic because you're not helping the patient. You may be masking the symptoms. And if the patient is worse by doing everything else, you also may have to think of adding another layer. Maybe you're missing the boat. Maybe the bug is resistant. Maybe you're missing a yeast, and you're not, you have not given antifungal coverage. So your approach is improved, de-escalate or discontinue, depending on what you think. Same, you have to start thinking what else could be happening. Worse again, you may have to add more antibiotics. That's your approach. Now, duration of therapy. We were taught everything was in multiples of 7s, 10s, 14s, 21s, 28s, and ID. Life has changed since then. Community-acquired pneumonia, typically we used to give 10 to 14 days. The new data suggests that maybe five days, and some data suggests maybe even three days may be adequate. We talked about fluoroquinolones, like a drug like Levo, which you can give high dose, you can get a lot of area under the curve of the drug, and you can ex expose the bacteria to very high levels and kill the bacteria quickly. Pyelonephritis, it's a tish deep tissue infection. Standardly, we were taught 14 days. There's new data to suggest five to seven days might be enough, so you can give shorter courses. And the new guidelines for by IDSN's uh, Surgical Infection Society for intra-abdominal infections suggest four to seven days might be enough for intra-abdominal infections. So shorter the better. So the concept is hit hard, hit quickly, reassess, and stop quickly. That's what the concept is these days. This is the landmark study, which was published by the French group, and they're very prolific in their publications, which looked at eight versus 15 days. And I want to point out the day one, they count as one, where we, in most of the American data, we count as day zero. So it's actually comparing seven to 14 days of antibiotic therapy. And what they demonstrated very nicely, that the ICU stay, unfavorable outcomes, death, and are all comparable, if anything, slightly better in patients who got shorter course. 
The emergence of resistant bacteria, as we expect, was much more often in the longer therapy. With a little caveat, they did say that patients who had MDR pseudomonas or acinetobacter should probably get longer. Otherwise, seven days of therapy for most hospital-acquired pneumonia was enough. And one more caveat I'm going to add myself in my own experience, MRSA pneumonia. MRSA produces cavitating lung lesions, is very invasive, and in my experience produces a lot of complications. So added to that, if a patient has a MRSA pneumonia, I try to treat longer, again for 14 days. What are the other measures which are proposed by ID guards for antimicrobial therapy? So the goals of ASP, or antimicrobial stewardship, as we call it, are to improve patient outcomes. Also, you want to minimize the consequences, such as resistance and or development of C. difficile. You also want to decrease the toxicity of antibiotic. And you also actually want to improve the healthcare costs. So that's your major goal. So the major goal is actually patient, patient outcomes. So besides our usual strategies, what we can do to improve outcomes are actually education you know, and guidelines. Now, guidelines are good. You, know, you have pneumonia guidelines, you have uh, abdominal guidelines, you have this guidelines and that guidelines. But sometimes I think the guidelines take away the thinking process because we automatically go to that as a knee-jerk reaction. Always think outside the box, always. If a patient comes in, patient does come, doesn't come in having read a book. You have to think about what is a little different. So always think differently. Always think of de-escalation and streamlining. You always have to think of optimal doses. We talked about that a lot. PO conversion is something important. And then use your microlab appropriately. You know there are a lot of DNA probes available for enterococci, for staph aureus. You can ask for that, and you can get a quick diagnosis because a DNA probe can tell you it's coag negative staph versus coag positive staph, and you may not even need to give your vancomycin. Same thing with a gram-positive coxine chains. You know, you know within two hours whether it's enterococcus or non-enterococcus. That is very helpful in determining what antibiotic you want to use. One thing which keeps coming in is the role of procalcitonin. So I decided to include a little bit of data in this. The biggest challenge in ID is to make a diagnosis of infection. Unfortunately, there is not a computer which puts a stamp on patient's head that this patient is infected and this patient is not infected. So you always have to do that. And then, once you determine you have, have an infection, then monitoring the response and making a decision when to stop. That's the other challenge. So the biggest goal of that is decreasing the duration of antibiotics, right? That's what we always want to do. Um, the two parameters which we have used is CRP and procalcitonin. CRP, unfortunately, has proved to be very nonspecific, so I'm not going to talk about that. But procalcitonin comes up again and again and keeps raising its ugly head, and the discussion keeps going, so I'm going to talk about that a little more. Procalcitonin is injectable in, uh, in the blood in three to four hours. It peaks at 14 to 24 hours. Unfortunately, it's affected by leukopenia and by renal function and by CRT. And the essay is expensive. So those are some shortcomings. This is a very nice uh, diagram. It's very confusing. But I'd like to just say that these studies which looked at it actually looked at some of the numbers. And if it was procalcitonin level was under 0.1, or between 1 to 0.1 to 0.25, the bacterial etiology of infection was extremely unlikely. So they did not recommend antibiotics. 
However, if it was over 0.25 and definitely was over 0.5, it was likely and very likely, and they recommended antibiotics. Now from the seven randomized controlled trials, which included almost 2,200 patients, these were the data which came out. The positive part was that there was shorter therapy days on procalcitonin in ARM, but this was negative or controversial part. Unfortunately, in these studies, the rate of exclusion was extremely high, and there were difficult bugs and infections which were not tackled properly. Um, the PCT measure was different in different studies, so it was not adequate and not comparable. The controls were not well-defined. There was poor compliance, so a lot of patients were taken out earlier from the study because the attending did not feel comfortable, so there was an overrule starting. A lot of patients were stopped without, you know, without the study protocol. A lot of patients on the control arm got much longer therapy and much broader spectrum of antibiotics. They did not, uh, they did not quite account for renal failure, and there was much higher SOFA score and, and ventilator days in the procalcitonin, non-procalcitonin arm. The length of stay, superinfection, relapse, resistance were similar. Mortality was same or slightly worse on procalcitonin arm. So the conclusion of these seven different studies was that routine use is not recommended, and you should use procalcitonin in conjunction with clinical lab and radiological data, and further studies need to be done. So at this point, procalcitonin use as a marker of infection in critically ill patients is pretty controversial. I know the NIH group has uh, decided to do a study in various centers, including RED, so we will see if some results come out of that. That'll be a little more helpful. Now we'll go through a few case histories, and I want full audience participation here. That'll be very good. So this is a 45-year-old male who was found down at home. He has past history of diabetes, hypertension, and IVDA. No history, no visible trauma. Vital signs on admission are heart rate, blood pressure, temperature as you see. GCS is eight. His physical exam is unremarkable except for erythema over the right thigh. He does have needle tracks on his arms. White count is 17,000. Uh, he's acidotic, his glucose is high, his creatinine is high, negative chest x-ray, and the initial CT head is negative. What would you like to do? I'm sorry? Oh, sure, Mike. Yeah, please. You know all of them. Sounds good. Anybody else would like to add anything to that? Okay, an echo for just the... Generally, we would wait for positive blood cultures, but you know, something maybe for assessing the fluid status and that would be okay. One comment from back there? Okay. All right. So what we did was cultures LP, imaging of thigh, which is something we can do. Um, immediate therapy is lines, fluids, antibiotics. Always consider falling things. He's a diabetic, he's hypertensive, he's IVDA. So consider his risk. We talked about MRSC pseudomonas. He's a sick patient. Um, we do not have a clearly defined site of infection. So although I could say that if you consider this could be CNS, till we have the LP back, we could, could switch to cefepime. 
because remember, penetration of zosin is not perfect into the CNS. We will cover broad spectrum. We will cover pathogens. If a patient is extremely ill, we might add a second gram-negative drug. Um, we will risk the, and then we always think of non-infectious causes. Is it drug overdose? You know, is the other, could he have a pulmonary emboli? Could it be pancreatitis? Could this man have an MI? So keep assessing everything. We think it's possibly septic. We have assessed the risk. Site is unclear. So again, going to our various phases, remember the time, timeline of our antimicrobial therapy? MRSA drugs are, I'm sorry, I think I went backwards. MRSA drugs are right up here. One of those choices, I would not choose this up front. I would not choose this up front because you don't know it's a mnemonic process. Again, I may not choose even linazolate. It's a static drug. If you think patient is bacteremic, probably go with vancomycin. Um, we could go with the basic gram-negative drug. If you think patient is very sick, we might add a second agent. And then if you're not giving drugs like this, which are covering anaerobes, we might cover these also. Think about those. So this is what we started with in this patient. In next 12 hours, we have a thigh x-ray with air and soft tissue. We get blood cultures with GPCs. What comes so quickly in 12 hours? It, somebody said it. Strep. Often it's strep, which will come so quickly. Staph might come, but group A strep is something which will come very fast. So thinking of how sick the patient is, group A strep and staph become clearly a possibility. Uh, we, are, we have taken the patient to OR. His renal function is getting worse. We start pressors. So what do we do now? We call an ID doc and scream for help, or we cha make changes or no changes. Dr. Scott? Um, I want to pick on him, I mean, since you picked on him. <laughs> Yeah, and adding clindamycin is not unreasonable. So we have to think about these parameters. Um, you know, we know we want glycemic control. He's got chronic kidney disease. Does he have that? Do we know prior antibiotics? Do you know the leg is viable? This is clearly something we have to address. Uh, we have to think of MRSA history. Think of virulence. We have to think of Clostridia and Group A strep. And is it water-related? Something we should explore. Aeromonas and Vibrio become a possibility. Clearly, we have to think about all that, including toxin act activity. And I'm not opposed to adding Clinda. So we talked about that. Clinda does have toxin, is an RNA synthesis inhibitor, and does act to the toxin production. Um, you potentially can take away advanced gram-negative drug. You know you have staph in blood. You take away GENT. And now the cultures come back with MSSA. So you can go to your primary staph drug, which will be probably ANSEF. And duration of therapy is going to be 14 days. If repeat blood cultures are negative, otherwise longer. Now, patients' nasal cultures come back with MRSA. Does it matter? Would you keep Vanco going? No. And something you have to remember, that if it's MSSA in blood, you're targeting your therapy towards what's in the blood. Even if patient is colonized with MRSA in the nose, you're going to ignore that. Yes? So most of the studies have come with uh, nafcillin. However, cefazolin is equally effective. And the only time I use nafcillin is when there is a CNS infection because cefazolin does not get in. Nafcillin is six times a day. It produces osmotic diarrhea and more bone marrow suppression, and it's a pain in the neck to get. That's why. And they're equally effective. 
This is case history number two. I think we have almost gone overboard. Okay, maybe I'll skip this. So to consider the factors before you select an antibiotic therapy, is an antibiotic needed? Assess the risk of MDR bugs. Remember, is the patient from hospital or an ICU? Know your antibiograms. Do you know the organism or you can do a good guess? Remember the comorbidities of the patient, and then think of the risks and benefits of the available options. And based on that, you select your antimicrobial therapy. Thank you. So, uh, any questions here? Yes, Parker, of course. Yes. <laughs> So studies came out suggesting that if you rotate antibiotics and certain classes of antibiotics, particularly the five classes, and the five classes were broken up into cephalosporins, penicillins, carbapenems, uh, tigacycline, and fluoroquinolones. And they said if you rotate antibiotics at a certain period of time, you can probably decrease resistance and increase efficacy. However, they were not clear as to when, how often should they be rotated, in which order, and there was a whole bunch of controversies. So that's still extremely controversial, and nobody knows what to do with that. Dr. George, would you mind touching on uh, the diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia? It's controversial in and of itself. You know, what do we, how do you guys do it? How do we, you know, I think it's important from my standpoint to stress that, and I imagine you agree with me, that a, di a diagnosis of an organism does not mean a diagnosis of a pneumonia and to factor in clinical. So Mike, that's a very important question. Thank you for asking. And uh, that itself is a lecture in itself. Uh, let me tell you that. But I think I was telling Ronan when we were talking about ventilator-associated pneumonia that having an ID for over 30 years is probably one of the most humbling diagnoses. The more I see, the less I know. Um, quite often, uh, 80, my study done as a fellow when I was an ID fellow, um, I looked at a group of patients who had perfect criteria for pneumonia and more, and were diagnosed as a pneumonia uh, by a radiologist on chest X-ray. And we enrolled 100 patients on the study. Um, they, we gave them vigorous physical therapy, talking about vigorous physical therapy every two hours, including aggressive suctioning, percussion, and everything. And we found 80% of patients improved totally with physical therapy, and they did not require uh, any antibiotics at all. And this was an eye-opener for me. And I realized in lot in trauma patients, 80% of patients are probably atelectasis. We are not curing pneumonia. So even though you have perfect criteria for pneumonia, like fever leukocytosis, physical exam, a positive sputum gram stain and culture, and a positive chest X-ray, and deteriorating blood gases, atelectasis will produce exactly the same picture. And often mobilization and chest physical therapy and aggressive suctioning will take away most of these. And presence of an organism is usually colonization. If you have a tube in somebody, uh, you'll have a bug. And that's one thing which I have a major problem when they do pneumonia studies, that they use a microbiological endpoint of eradicating the pathogen. If you look at pathogens like MRSA and Pseudomonas, they're present in the, uh, in the endotracheal tube forever because they form biofilms, and they're not going to go away. So if you base your therapy on those bugs, then you're making a mistake. They're colonizing. One, one other uh, uh, controversial area. When you have suspected septic shock, so severe infection-induced abnormalities, but you don't 
have an identified organism, how long do you treat? Until, I mean, until clinical improvement and stability, till one day after that, two days after? You know, what, what's your thought process? The general principle of infectious diseases is to treat few days beyond when the clinic patient gets better. Um, and the classic example is intra-abdominal infections. So for intra-abdominal infections, when the patients, there are four things you look at in intra-abdominal, and I use the same thing for septic shock. Uh, when the amount of drainage starts decreasing, uh, when the bowel function starts returning, when the white count starts coming down, and the fever comes down. Your principle is you give three to four days beyond that. The same thing with mnemonic process. The same thing with, not with UTI, you stop quicker. But with septic shock, I'll use the same principles. Give three to four days beyond when the patient gets better and stop. You had a question, Tara? So the studies which compared in a, in a non-neutropenic host and a non-immunosuppressed host. In an immunosuppressed host, let me say that since we expect any organism, which could be a virus, which could be a fungus, where the yield of a BAL is much higher. In that group, bronchoscopy is clearly superior. In our kind of patient population, which are non-neutropenic and non-immunosuppressed, uh, bronchoscopy has been compared to a sputum induction specimen and to a BAL. And they have looked at various parameters, and they have shown that the yield of each is very similar. Um, the time bronchoscopy becomes critical if you're going to use it as a pulmonary toilet. And you know, there's a foreign body, and you, there is a collapse, and you want to open the lung up. Um, but in our own study, which we looked at 50 patients and compared all the three, uh, all the three um, processes, they looked very similar. And the only difference is that bronchoscopy may get a little more targeted specimen uh, from an area, and in an induction sputum, you may have oral contamination. Um, so day three or four, when you're tailoring your therapy and you're trying to de-escalate, you may be, the bronchoscopy may be more superior for doing that. Uh, but day one, uh, there is very unclear data. That's why the guidelines from ATS and IDSA do not support one maneuver or the other. They say, whichever way you can get an adequate specimen, you should. Just to echo that, I, I think you're balancing sensitivity and specificity, right? So anything from above or below, if it's pneumonia-induced, you know, colonization of like that same organism in the, in the trachea, or, or if it's just some colonizer from the oral flora that's hanging out in the trachea, um, it, you have high sensitivity. You're going to detect organisms. Now, as the lower respiratory tract culture that you get, the higher specificity, supposedly, you know, and so it, it just depends on the variety of factors that Dr. Joshi mentioned. So one more point I want to make to that, because if you're going to do a bronchoscopy, it has to be done right away. If you give even one dose of antibiotics and you do bronchoscopy after that, the yield is very poor. So the, one of the major criticisms of these studies came out in a community hospital where you don't have a pulmonologist standing right there who can do a bronchoscopy. What do you do? You're not going to withhold antibiotics. You're going to start antibiotics. And even if you give one dose of antibiotics, the yield of bronchoscopy becomes very poor. And the other thing which you often see Habashi quoting, and I cannot even imagine I'm quoting Habashi, is, is that how often, you know, if you don't do bronchoscopy properly, then it's bad. Because if you look at a bronchoscopy and you see the type of bugs we get in bronchoscopy here, they are um, Marixella or coag negative staph, which is mostly oral flora. That means it has not been done properly. There is oral contamination. So all those features become, make bronchoscopy harder and maybe pretty comparable to induction sputum. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.